You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Matthew five, twenty-seven and 30. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 2, 3. Good morning. I have uh, gotten to know Ryan, and he's a great guy. So you, I know you all are in good hands and have been uh, faithfully um, taught the scriptures. And so he has loved me so well that he's given me this difficult text as a guest speaker to come and uh, proclaim to you this morning. Uh, so a little bit about myself. I've been in college ministry for the last 12 years, um, actually, yeah. And I've been married for 15 years uh, to this beautiful woman here, Naima. And she and I have five children together. And um, we've just enjoyed uh, serving the Lord together. I think that's probably been the highlight of our marriage. Um, with all of its challenges and difficulties, uh, she stuck with me. So uh, I'm grateful for that. Um, my mother is also here in the audience, uh, Gloria, and uh, I'm grateful for her to be here. She lives in the area, so it was good to have her here. But as challenging as this text is, even as we were reading it, I could feel the tension in the room. Uh, so I, I, one, I'm grateful for that. That means that there's a high regard for the scriptures, um, and you all take God's word seriously. Um, but the big idea that I hope to get across this morning is that Christ demands and demonstrates lordship in our passions. I think this is the central issue of this text, that the first word that comes across as we read it is, is lust and adultery, and it does. It cuts us to the quick. But I really think that the heart and the intent are the issues. So we think about things that we're passionate about. Um, I had a moment uh, where the Lord dealt with me in this area of my passions. Um, I was very much passionate about football. I was passionate about athletics. I was passionate about any and everything. Um, but God arrested me um, maybe 15 years ago as a, uh, as a high school uh, junior, senior, when he took away the idol of my heart. Um, so if, if you are familiar, you know, down here, football is king. And I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where basketball is king. <laughs> but my heart was, was so passionate about wanting to play football. I carried a football around to every class just so I could be sure to make sure I got my grades so I could be eligible to play football. <laughs> and God arrested me. He said, you're more passionate about this pigskin and about running up and down this field than you are about me. And that was the first time that he had done it, and I was arrested. 
And he calls me to, to humble my heart and to surrender to his lordship. And that's where this journey of bringing in and reigning in my passions begin. And so I want to walk with you all this morning through this text with this in mind. Jesus is addressing when your passions have gone wild. The lust and the adultery of the heart is what results. When I think about this, I see Jesus demonstrating for us um, that his passion for truth and his passion for purity all leads to an all-consuming passion for his glory. And I pray that as we walk through this text, that you would keep that in mind and that it will begin to turn our hearts and, and arrest our spirits even as we evaluate what, what the Lord is laying out before us. And so the text has already been read for us in our hearing, but I just want to read this one part where he says, you have heard that it was said. I think that God's passion and Christ's passion for truth causes us to stop at that phrase because it's unique. It says, you've heard that it was said, but I say. I think he's underlying for us, he's demonstrating for us his passion for truth. He says, I, I know what you heard, but here's the real deal. I don't want you to be deceived. He says, these are the words, I, I think for us, these are the words of a, a, a radical reformist. He's setting the record straight once and for all, saying, forget what you've heard, here is the word. And literally, the word was speaking these words. He uttered the word of truth, bringing reform to the way that the law is interpreted. And so here we see progressive revelation at its finest, right? Because the, the, in the Old Testament, they understood the law in one way. And here's Jesus saying, no, you, you, you didn't get it. You didn't get to the heart of it. And I want to hear set the record straight. And in light of that, I think we have to keep in mind, as we do when we read Scripture and we interpret Scripture, that Christ is the key to unlocking the full understanding of the Old Testament. And he is here most explicitly laying out for us the intent of the administration of the law. This brings to mind one of the, the Old Testament characters, uh, Josiah, King Josiah. We think about his radical reform as king and as a, a foreshadowing of Christ in 2 Chronicles 34, 2, this is what it reads. It says, and he did what was right in the eye of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father, David. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of its high places, the asherim and the carved and metal images. He chopped them down, the altars of bells. In his presence, he cut them down, the incense altars that stood above them. He cut those down. He broke into pieces all the carved and metal images, and he made them dust. And he scattered them over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests and their altars 
and cleanse Judah and Jerusalem. Is that not radical reform? I mean, he went through and he set the record straight. Once he had understood what God's will was, there was nothing that was going to be in the way of him executing that. And I think Christ is here modeling the same thing in this particular area when we deal with the passions of our heart. And he's addressing here the lust and what results from it, adultery, whether it's physical or spiritual adultery. This is the kind of reform that Christ is bringing in his ministry. And this text is pretty much like case number one. He is saying that it's time for you to purge and bring about a reformation of your hearts. So we see the radical reform under his passion for truth. But then I think we also see a redemptive reflection here. The words of Jesus say, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The words of Jesus are clear and unmistakable. Everyone, everyone who looks upon a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Two things are emphasized here. One is intent, and the other is the heart. The intent. This is a state of a person's mind that directs him or her in a particular course of action. Paul states in Romans 13, 14, he says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Why are you following the particular person that you follow on Facebook or Twitter? Why do you choose to send a direct message to the person you follow on Instagram? Is it someone who's done some research, market research, and said, hey, here's a person you need to check out. And you take that suggestion and go follow them. What is the intent of your heart in turning your gaze in this direction or in that direction? Christ is here dealing with the intent, the motive. In my understanding of this, <laughs> I begin to look through uh, some quotes by Martin Luther and I thought this was really helpful when it comes to intent. He says, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. That's true. I can't do anything about the way a particular person carries themselves, what content media puts out, but what I can do is keep it from making a nest in my mind, building a nest for it in my heart. What is the intent? The second thing that he deals with here is the heart, which we know is the, the seat of emotions and desires from which choices are oriented. I think here we just, we need some serious introspection here. It's necessary for us to walk in truth in the inward places. Introspection, we have to take inventory of our own hearts. And I think it's particularly difficult in our culture where there's not any room in life for reflection. You're always getting some update, some news, some alert, and you never have the opportunity to reflect and to be introspective about what is the condition and the state of my heart? 
I'm bringing this up a little bit later, but I, I love the practice of uh, the early church father, Ignatius, where he talks about uh, having a practice of the daily office, where in the morning, in the midday, and in the afternoon, you have a period where you just stop and you reflect. Man, where have I encountered the presence of the Spirit in these last few hours? Where have I felt the Lord walking with me or his spirit convicting me? This, I think, is a good practice for our age, that we don't have those moments. In fact, uh, my wife and I watch Shark Tank sometimes. I don't know, anybody watch Shark Tank? It's great. But, But there was a particular invention on there where this lady was selling an app for meditation. An app for meditation? But I think the idea is helpful. It gives you a little reminder, and it says, take a few minutes, breathe, and meditate. And then you hear this voice of someone who's like, you know, stop. This is awesome. (laughs) I'm going to download that app. (laughs) But here, I think that's what's necessary for us to walk in the passion of truth, as Jesus is expressing here in the text. Psalms tells us plainly that You formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Job records that the Lord put wisdom in the inward parts and has given understanding to the mind. Therefore, we can rightly reflect on our intentions and the condition of our heart. This we must do if we are to have a passion for truth that reflects the passion of our God. Examine our heart and our intent. Christ's passion for truth is chiefly concerned about rightness in our inward parts. We know this because in Matthew 23, 25, he pronounces woe on the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, who were more concerned with the outward appearance. He says here, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. So here Christ is reiterating, he's, he's, he's up in the ante, that it's not just the external practices that we do, but it's the intent and the posture and the position of our heart. What does this radical reform and redemptive reflection look like for you? Does it call for a King Josiah response? To tear down and grind to dust some idols and altars that are in our heart and in our life? Do we need to unfriend and unfollow some people? Maybe it's time to peel back the layers of your heart's intentions in the area of lust and adultery that result and pray for wisdom from Yahweh, wisdom and understanding to do some introspective evaluation. So why is this important at all? (laughs) Well, because of the destructive nature of lust. Jim Neuhauser, who's a biblical counselor, says that it's destructive. Lust is destructive in five areas. In our relationship with God, in our relationship with our spouse, if we're married, in our relational influence, You think about the children and maybe we mentor some people. In our relationship with ourself, disrupts our own self-image. 
And if, if we're single and we're not married, then it disrupts our relationship with our future spouse. And the reality is that getting married doesn't solve it. The gospel is the good news that comes to restore the brokenness in those five areas. And it brings shalom. It brings peace. So the misguided passions and lusts, as we have seen, bring some brokenness and therefore is antithetical to the gospel. The two can't coexist. So, as a result, the second component of kingdom passion is a passion for purity. First is a passion for truth. Then we see Christ expressing a passion for purity. See, purity is an issue of passion rightly harnessed for, the, for purposeful pleasure. Many of us think of, of purity as shackles, restrictive. But the truth of the matter is that purity frees us up, gives us liberty to enjoy passions rightly and to make them purposeful and enjoyable. And here Jesus is so passionate about our eternal investment in the kingdom that he doesn't want us to suffer loss. But he wants all who have been given to him by the Father to be brought safely to, to glory as he prayed in John 17, the high priestly prayer. You see, Jesus is our initial investor. He's a shareholder in our kingdom investment. And he's our investment advisor in our divine dividend. He wants us to maximize the eternal payout. Our rewards are in heaven. And so as our initial investor, as our investment advisor, and as our eternal dividend, he calls us to put in place a stop-loss order. You know what a stop-loss order is? It's basically an order that says to your broker, your representative, that at certain point, you need to sell this security if I'm losing too much. Don't worry about how I feel about it. You just need to get rid of it. And that's what Jesus is saying here in the text. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And here he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to be for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Is that not the ultimate stop loss call? This is the order of the day. Cut it off. Tear it away. Throw it away. Burn it up. I don't care. Just get rid of it. Because I don't want to suffer eternal loss. And here Jesus is giving us some investment advice. I, I think he's wise enough to do that, right? Maybe this is something we need to listen to. It's, it's, it's hard. It's difficult. I'm not undermining the, the complexity of it here. This is a hard thing. But I think in the same way that a stop-loss order keeps us from losing our shirt and investment, this kind of commandment helps us to govern our passions so that we don't lose our souls in rebellion and disobedience 
to our Father. Jesus advises us to take action to cut our losses. This underlines his passion for purity. Now, he tells us how to do that. He says, it requires radical amputation, a period of breaking away and allowing one to be emotionally restored as the bandages of grace are applied in the healing balm of the blood of Christ or allowed to penetrate into the broken areas. The loss of normal functionality can be traumatic. We all have our habits, things that we do just out of redundancy. So to change those things, to have somebody move the cheese, so to speak, is difficult. Yet the loss as a whole is much less than the destruction of remaining in that position. So Jesus tells us to tear it out, throw it away, cut it off. He says desperate times calls for desperate measures. Is Jesus promoting asceticism here? Severity to the body? Mutilation? Not at all. But he's speaking in this kind of hyperbole to kind of drive the point home. The emotional and physical, psychological effects of a passionate pursuit of purity will feel like you have actually amputated a limb. I think about this in a particular way. He tells him to, to, if your right hand offends you, he says to cut it off. If your right eye offends you, he says to pluck it out. And the reality here is that in our passionate pursuit of purity, it's going to cause some of us to learn how to write with our left hand if we're right-handed. It's that uncomfortable. Have you ever tried to sign something with your left? It's difficult. Something legible comes out if you just practice it over time. But the reality is, it's difficult. And that's what he's saying here. It is difficult, but it's necessary. The idea of cutting your losses, whatever they may be, having a stop order in place in investments will prevent your emotions from taking over and will limit your losses. Christ is here giving us eternal investment advice. So what does that look like? I would suggest that many of us know the means by which um, we are being exposed to different forms of lust and therefore coerced into adultery. If not, then I go back to the first point and have a time of redemptive reflection this evening. I think it's worthwhile. I'll leave this particular point with a quote for your soul to contemplate. It says this, sin left unchecked turns the natural instincts of our bodies into lust. It will turn our natural appetites into indulgence. Our need for clothing and shelter into materialism and our natural sexual interests into immorality. Jerry Bridges. So in addition, we are radically galvanized towards this passion for purity as we reflect on the the redemption that has been accomplished for us. So we have a passion for truth. We have a passion for purity. 
that calls for radical amputation, but you're not even at a place to do that until you have reflected on the redemption accomplished for you. Because apart from grace, you just continue to fail and there's no hope. So let's look at that for a second. The passions of my life no longer drive my deceitful lusts or longings. Those things belong to my old nature because Christ has purchased for me a new nature that requires that I put these old things off so that I can right, rightly walk in the new nature. Ephesians 4.2 tells us that we are brand new. And it says, in keeping with that new nature, we need to throw off our own sinf old sinful nature as you are uh, in your former ways of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Ephesians 2.3 2, 2, tells us, all of us lived that way. We once lived that way, following the passions of our nature. But we're called to put it to death. As Paul says in Colossians 3.5, put to death the sinful nature, the earthly things lurking within you. These things, immorality, impurity, lust. And here's the thing, the greatness of our Lord's love lavished on us described by Paul in Ephesians 1, should give some motivation for this, as difficult as it is. Really quickly, in Ephesians 1, he says that he has given us every spiritual blessing, that he has chosen us, he's predestined us for greatness as sons and daughters of his family. He's accomplished redemption through the investment of his own son's blood for our souls. And he's ransomed us from spiritual bankruptcy. He has made a spiritual deposit within us to guarantee our redemption with the spirit of Christ who dwells in us. If these things don't move your soul or stir your emotions towards a loving, passionate pursuit of his glory, then we may need to check our spiritual pulse. And that's what Jesus is saying here. For your soul, your whole body to go into hell. The only way that that's possible is if you don't have a spiritual pulse to begin with. It's not that we lose it because of our sin. God knows we're sinful. He, he knows our nature. That's what grace is for. He's purchased us. He's redeemed us. He's called us. He's predestined us. We will persevere to the end. And the proof that that is that we pursue holiness. We pursue righteousness. We're passionate about truth. We're passionate about purity. Why? Because we're passionate about the glory of Christ. It's my last point here. The glory of Christ. Tim Keller asked this question in his book, The Counterfeit Gods. He says, who can turn, excuse me, who can I turn to that will enable me to escape all other counterfeit gods? It's a good question. Who is worthy of all my heart's intent and my passionate pursuit? Where should I set my gaze that will satisfy my longings in light of the temptation that's all around me? That's a fitting question. And I would suggest 
one thing in three parts. That one thing is the passion of Christ. A passion for Christ. Look to Jesus. He accomplished what we couldn't. He is pure in heart. His intents are always good. He was tempted with lust, yet remained pure. How do I know that? Well, because Hebrews tells me that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I suggest that this passion is manifested in three ways for us. One is conformity. I'll give three to you. One is conformity, two is covenant, and three is consistency. Conformity, we think of Romans 8, 29. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Through beholding Christ's glory daily as a practice of life, meditating on his word and prayer, reading it, meditating on it, memorizing it, listening to it, praying through it. Daily, we behold the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed into that same image as we behold him, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us. But not only conformity to his image, but I would suggest a covenant. Like Job in 31 verse 1, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze upon a virgin? See, Job's integrity was a foreshadowing of Christ's integrity. This covenant affirms purity of passions. And if it was a good practice for the righteous man Job and the Christ, our Lord, it would be commendable to us as well, you think? Covenant with your members, I mean the members of your body, <laughs> about what you will and won't put before yourself. I was confronted with this as well. I always thought about this idea of limiting what I would watch and what I'd expose myself to as kind of like, that's just immature. I, I, I trust myself, I trust my judgment. I know when to turn away and when not to. Needless to say, I was humbled. And I had to set in place some things to just, to guard my family, to guard my marriage, to guard my community, to build hedges around me, to create a code of conduct so that I wouldn't go near the door. As Proverbs 5, 8 talks about in giving advice to a young man and avoiding the adulterous woman's way. There's some routes I'm just not gonna take. And I have to be committed to that. And since boundaries is the word, the buzzword nowadays, I'll keep with that and say that we need to set covenant boundaries. In a ministry among college-age students who really don't know how to relate to men or women very well, I've had to set some things in place and I'll just put them out there and commend them to you as well. I haven't kept these perfectly, but my heart's intent 
And my desire is to pursue truth and purity and to pursue the glory of Christ in these very practical ways. Just not driving in a car alone with another woman or being in a room with a woman by myself. Not becoming involved with a close friendship with a woman without my wife or her husband being a significant part of that relationship. Conversations with women in a situation where my wife or her husband are not present will be brief and businesslike. Making a covenant not to flirt. When I see a, a tempting situation, I look away. When I struggle, I'll seek help. And ultimately, I will not trust myself. I will not trust myself. These are hard and difficult things for both men and women to do. But I think it's necessary if we truly are passionate about the glory of Christ. So not only a covenant, not only conformity to the image of Christ, but lastly, consistency. And I call this the G-code. The godliness code. I call it grit and grace. Grit is the discipline to apply truth you already know in a planned and organized way that brings about a change in habit. It's gritty because it requires the structure to hang in there when your natural inclinations is to bail out. Jay Adams says, you may have sought and tried to obtain instant godliness. There's no such thing. We want somebody to give us three easy steps to godliness and we'll take them next Friday and be godly. The trouble is godliness doesn't come that way. Adams goes on to say that it is obtained through Christian discipline, which I've called the G-code. Godliness code for conduct. So that's the first G is grit. And the reality is that that, that, that kind of grit and stick to is not possible without the power of the Holy Spirit. So some of us are really, really disciplined and we can create a structure and we just bah, 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 one point to the next. But it has no eternal benefit if it's not done in faith and if it's not done through the power of the Holy Spirit. So grit, and then lastly, grace. Grace, grace, grace. <laughs> Philippians 1.6, I had to remind myself of these promises. That the work that he has begun in you, he will bring to completion. Philippians 2.13, God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The big picture is that this is God's thing. He's more passionate about his glory than we will ever be. But we can't be cavalier about it. We have to be committed to the grittiness. We have to hold tight to the grace because the gospel is worth it. 
There are precious promises that should give us the grace needed to strive for a passion for truth and a passion for purity, as well as a passion for the glory of Christ. Along the way, there will be some radical reform necessary, and we will be conformed to the image of Christ and made whole for eternity. We will be like Christ. Is that not worth it? And so here, as Jesus lays the ax at the root in regards to lust and adultery, I would commend to you that we be passionate for truth, that we be passionate for purity, because the glory of Christ is a passion worth pursuing. Let me pray for us. Father, you are good, and your mercy endures forever. Great is your faithfulness. I pray, Father, that this morning, as we have been convicted, as we have been challenged, I pray, Lord, that you would comfort us and that you would set in us a conviction to pursue godliness at all costs because you have given us the will and the power to work for your good pleasure because you have started this work and you will bring it to completion. Would you give us the confidence to lean in on that grace so that we can reflect your image and your likeness so that we can restore creation to what you intended. God, that as you bring about redemption in the earth, that you would bring about redemption in our hearts and that we would recover the glory of Christ because you are worth it. We pray in the name of your son, Christ. Amen.